Well, good morning, everyone. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and we'll dive right into Second Peter. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, it's your blessing in our lives that allows us to lift our voices in song. Lord, we, we make a joyful noise. Not all of us have been gifted by you with, with perfect pitch and wonderful singing voices, but in our hearts, we understand we had a big debt, an insurmountable debt, and you paid you paid that debt. And that's why we can sing, Lord. That's why we can praise you. That's why we can gather together as your people because you paid the debt that was beyond anything we could ever imagine. Lord, help us never forget that. Help us to always be reminded daily of the miraculous mercy that you poured out on us, undeserving sinners, but you did it because you loved us and we thank you. And Lord, as we jump into our text this morning, I pray that you'd help my mind be clear as we look at these passages of Second Peter. Lord, there are some challenging things in the text, and, and I'm going to teach what I believe to be true, but Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be a stumbling block for anyone. These are not the central truths of the Christian faith, Lord. These are things that you mention in your word, and, and you don't fully elaborate, so, so we're left with a little mystery. But I just pray that this would be encouraging to us, that we wouldn't miss the big picture, which is that we have hope because of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, we are, as I began last week, we are in a section of Second Peter, beginning at verse 4, that continues down through the middle of verse 10. Verse editions were not inspired. They were added later for convenience. And, and verses 10 and 11 were not divided particularly well because the thought ends at what I put in my notes as 10a, the first part of verse 10. But Peter is dealing here with the issue of false teachers, but it's really transcending false teachers. He gave great encouragement in the first chapter that as believers, we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have the promises of God. And he reiterated at the end of chapter one that those scriptures that show us those promises were not man-made. They aren't fairy tales. The apostles weren't sharing fairy tales. They were eyewitnesses. They saw it. They shared it. And beyond that, the prophets who wrote the Old Testament scriptures were inspired by God. These weren't just their own thinking, what they wanted. It was God motivating them, the Spirit of God indwelling them, pushing them, and helping them with their own personalities and styles to write Scripture. And yet, he is quick to say, but in verse 1 of chapter 2, but just like God brought about the truth, there's going to be false teachers. In the Old Testament, there were false prophets. And today, in this day, in the church era, there are false teachers. And we spent time going through the characteristics of false teachers. But one of the issues with false teachers was they were sexually immoral. Not only that, where they were teaching their churches to be sexually immoral. They were greedy. They were hustling money from people. Sounds a lot like a lot of TV preachers today in reality. But as we continue on in the chapter, I think Peter has in his mind the reality that we face sometimes, which is it looks like the bad guys are winning. The false teachers have disciples. They're making money. They're living out their desires. In fact, it's easy to see, and we talked about this as I introduced this last week, but right now it looks, if you look around the world, it looks like evil is winning. Things keep getting worse and worse. 
And sin is accepted more and more. In fact, sin isn't even called sin. It's commended as good. Evil's winning on the global political stage. And we're coming up to the next year, but evil's winning too many of our elections. Evil's dominating our culture and it's creeping in faster and faster into our churches such that at times it feels like we're surrounded and there's no hope. But Peter is writing to people whose situation was not entirely different. There were a lot of similarities and he was telling them, look, don't worry about the evildoers. Don't worry about false teachers, but as we're going through this text, it goes even broader than that. So I'm going to read this section again. We began covering the first point last time. It's three examples to give us hope when evil seems to be winning because we need to keep our eye on the prize. So follow along as I read from 4 down through the middle of 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So we have these three examples, and we started the first one, and I'm going to finish it today, and we're going to get into the second example. But there's three examples from redemptive history where God judged, and there are examples from redemptive history where God saved. And verses 9 and 10 really sum up why Peter put this here. As believers, we should have confidence. God knows how to rescue us from the temptation that comes in this world. And he does know how to keep the unrighteous, the evil, the wicked for judgment. They're not getting away with it. I can't tell you the number of times in counseling when I'm dealing with conflict between people, somebody is upset because they say, but, but they'll get away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. God's on his throne. So, the first example to give us hope when evil seems to be winning is what we started covering last week. I'm going to quickly get through the beginning of it. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. In other words, he's saying, look, God's going to judge the false teachers. He judged the angels. They didn't get away with it. If even they didn't get away with it, don't worry about these false teachers. But I'm going to summarize quickly what I taught last week because I ended it with a question that sort of left you hanging, which is, what did they do? But we summarized with scriptures that there are probably billions of angels, hundreds of millions at least, but probably billions. And a third of them fell. They were created holy, but Satan rebelled against God and a third of the angels followed him. It's an indication of how good of a liar he is. And those angels who sin cannot have forgiveness. I don't think I used the reference last week, but Hebrews 2.16, talking about Jesus, says, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the sin of Abraham. In other words, he didn't die to pay the penalty for sin for angels. He died to pay the penalty for sin for humans, humanity. Peter warned us in 1 Peter chapter 5, his first letter, 
Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. We see in the book of Job where it says Satan was roaming about. And we know because of the New Testament record that there is demonic activity all over the place. If you go to some of the places we go, like Africa, you probably can see a little bit more visible manifestation of it, but the reality is demons are active everywhere around us. That's what the scriptures teach. The Bible even warns about doctrines of demons, meaning demons wind up influencing false teachers in the church. But verse 4 states something unique about the types of angels that are being judged here. Because one day, Satan and all the demons will be thrown into the lake of fire, but that day hasn't happened. They're still moving about. But Peter, in verse 4, is talking about some specific subgroup of fallen angels. They're also referenced in Jude. They're also referenced in 1 Peter chapter 3. And it says that this group of angels, when they sinned, were cast into hell and committed into pits of darkness. Other versions talk about chains. The idea is there are some angels that are not roaming the earth. They're just sitting in darkness waiting to be judged. And by Jesus' interaction with demonically possessed people, we know that the place is referred to as the abyss. It's also a reference to it in the book of Revelation. But also, we know that it's a place of torment because some demons were saying, wait a minute, don't put me there before my time. So all of this truth really led up to the question of, but what did they do? Jude says it this way in verse 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And when I taught on this in 1 Peter, in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, talking about something Jesus did when he proclaimed victory over all the demonic forces, says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. And we're going to see convergence of two ideas because I said last week, whatever happened, happened in the days of Noah. I say that because 1 Peter chapter 3, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So there are some demons, some subset of demons, who did some type of sin during the era of Noah that was so severe that from that time, even until now, they're in chains, they're imprisoned, they're in darkness, and they're not roaming the earth. They're not seeing what's going on. As I taught in 1 Peter chapter 3, that's why Jesus went to them because they couldn't see the cross. They're in darkness and Jesus was proclaiming victory over those evil, wretched, fallen angels. But now the question that I left you with last week is what did they do? And some of you might remember when I taught from 1 Peter 3, some of you might not have been here, but I'm going to largely take the same view now that I take then. But I want to be clear as I go into this that this is not a central doctrine of the Christian faith. If you look, these are just references in the scripture. There's not a lot of explanation of what occurred. So for us, we're trying to dig a little deeper and understand it. But the reality is this isn't a central Christian doctrine. And different people who are equally godly can have different views. In fact, I think the elders at Lakeside would have different views 
on this idea. But you're here, and this is my view, so I'm going to share with you what I think (laughs) the Scriptures are saying, and I'll tell you why I think the Scriptures are saying it, but let me assure you, this takes some thinking. Because there are some things that seem inconsistent. I don't think they are. They're scriptural. But it stretches our ability to fully comprehend. And I think this is one of those things that I won't understand fully until I'm in heaven. But when I get to heaven, I won't care because I'll be with Jesus. So I may never know. But let's strap in and let's go through this. Now I'm going to reference again 1 Peter because this is the same author. So he's talking about the same thing. It would make sense that when you put the two teachings together, you get the fullness of what he's saying. But it seems clear because of what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, there was a period of time when Noah was building the ark. He was called to build the ark. He was called to build the ark because the world was so wicked And somewhere in this period of time, however long it was, was when this sin happened. Which means it all goes back to Genesis chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to read all of Genesis chapter 6, but if you wanted to go back, you would see the gist of things. And I think this is where we have to weave together and think through all of Scripture to come up with something that makes sense of all of the text. Because this was something so evil, it was a greater evil than destroying believers. It was greater evil than destroying unbelievers, which is what demons do. It was a greater evil than injecting false doctrine in the church, because those demons are still running free. What was it? So I'm going to start, I said Genesis chapter 6, and it is, but I'm going to go back to the end of chapter 5 and read verse 32. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 5, verse 32 through verse 4 for right now. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So the central terms there that we'll hang our hat on are the sons of God and the daughters of men. Very clear, the sons of God were attracted to the beautiful daughters of men, so much so that there was some type of marriage and there were children. And it appears, based on the wickedness that was multiplying, that God put a limit on the wickedness. He said, it will all come to an end. How wicked were these men? One of the famous statements of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, we all think we see that every day around us. Here's the difference. 
that was everybody. There were no churches. There were no indwelt people of God, indwelt by the Spirit people of God. In fact, this was so bad, that's why there was a worldwide flood. Because people were so evil, God could not allow it to continue. So, bear with me. We'll we'll get through this. But this becomes part of the key. I think Peter is referencing in our text and in 1 Peter 3, and I think Jude is referencing as well, those individuals characterized as the sons of God. So again, I'm going to try and weave this together. But sons of God in general in the Bible generally doesn't refer to human beings. When sons of God is used in that language in the book of Genesis and quite often elsewhere in the Old Testament, it refers to angels. I'm not going to read them, but you can see that in Job 1 to 6, Job 2 to 1, Job 38 7, Psalm 29 1, Psalm 89 6. I'm sorry I went through those quickly. But for example, in Job 1 to 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The sons of Elohim, the sons of God. So again, I, I believe. The Hebrew language suggests, based on the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, that sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 in this context means angels. But that poses a problem. Why does it pose a problem? Because it looks like, if that is the case, that something is happening that Jesus says can't happen and we can't have contradictions in the scripture. What do I mean? It looks like if sons of God means angels, that sons of God, the angels were attracted to human women and they married them and they procreated. But the scripture makes it clear that can't happen. Angels are distinct entities from humans. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 28 to 30, was talking about human marriage. And he made a reference to the difference once we get to heaven... He says this, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. You remember they were set in the trap. But Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, the angels aren't married. They're not procreating. They don't have that same relationship. If you think about what marriage is, it was created and God said in Genesis, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, man and woman is the only category of marriage. Angels don't marry. And I think we understand from Scripture, also in Genesis, in general, species don't create other species. They don't crossbreed. God created every type of creature in its kind, in its kind, in its kinds, and human beings were created uniquely in the image of God to procreate only with other human beings. Just go to Genesis chapter 1 when all the various things were created 
And it said it was created after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. Okay? But here's the challenge. So angels can't marry. They don't procreate with humans. Humans can only procreate with humans. That's God's created order. But it's also the true that there are times when angels look like humans and you don't know the difference. They can take on human form. We know that, for example, from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, when the Lord and other angels appeared as three men. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus. But, but Abraham cooked a meal for him, if you remember. And some of those men that were actually angels are going to come up in our next verses because they were on their way to destroy Lot. And you remember Abraham had that discussion. We'll cover it when we get the text of, well, what if there's 50 righteous or, or, or 20 righteous or 10 righteous? But here's the point. They didn't know at the time. They eventually figured it out, but they didn't know that these weren't just regular men. The men sat down and they ate. Hebrews 13.2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So it's possible that angels can appear to be human. So, let me recap, because I know I've stirred all the pots and the waters are really muddy right now. We'll get out of this, I promise. I think the sons of God in Genesis 6 that were attracted to human women were angels. And I think that Genesis chapter 6 says that in some fashion, these sons of God married human women and had children. And again, the language of Jude that talks about they didn't keep their own domain and abandon their proper abode is part of it. They overstepped the natural order. These angels in some way engaged in sexual immorality. That's why they're in chains. That's why they're in the abyss. In fact, uh, many commentators point out, in our text, it's going to talk right next about Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, one of the common themes throughout this whole section is sexual immorality. Jude deals with that same thing, referencing Sodom and Gomorrah. So, I think Genesis 6 is referring to sons of God as angels. I think Peter in both of his letters and Jude are referring to that historical incident. But I also think it's impossible for angels to mate with women. According to the scriptures, angels don't marry. Angels can't produce offspring with humans because that would go against the created order. So now how do you put this all together? Well, I follow a view that's espoused by John MacArthur. You throw his name out and you're fairly safe in most circumstances around here. But actually, I like his logic. And it has to do with the concept of demon possession. And I'm not going to go into all the scriptures because we'll run out of time. But if you remember, throughout the New Testament, there's references to people being demon possessed. Pastor Steve, in the text that he was introducing today, it talks about casting out demons. They had that authority. And it's interesting because when demons are indwelling humans, they become beyond human. What do I mean? They have superhuman strength. They can do incredible things. So, for example, in Mark chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, 
we read this. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had us dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Sounds like a Marvel superhero, except that this is real life. In other words, these demonic forces could exercise their phenomenal superhuman strength through these poor, wicked people that were possessed. So here's my best understanding. And again, this isn't a hill to die on. I've not seen another explanation of all of this that makes as much sense to me. But even this explanation has things that are hard for me to comprehend, but I'll, I'll go with it this way. The sons of God in some perverse, fallen, evil, demonic way were attracted to human women. But what they did was they possessed human men. In essence, becoming, with what we see in Scripture, superhuman men. So it was a man possessed by a demon. Now, I'm going to talk about this in a moment when we get to verse 5 with Noah... But this week, it really was resonating with me. I haven't quite thought this through. I know it's the truth. But imagine if you're the only believer on the planet. That was Noah. He was the only righteous man. Again, we're going to cover some of that. That was it. There was no other person. So Noah's got a wife. He's got his three sons and their wives. That's eight people. There is no other person on the earth following God. Which means demons are having a field day. They can possess anybody because there's no believers. And I think what happened was these demons combined with wicked humans that already had only evil intentions of every thought of their heart I mean, think about us. You ever have a bad thought go through your mind? You go, whoa, what was that? I know better. Am I the only one? Come on, be some honesty here. Okay. We've had thoughts go through our mind. Imagine if that's all you had were those thoughts. That's what the word of God describes. Evil is rampant because there is no holiness. The only righteousness at all is this one man, Noah, and his little family. So I believe, based on the best I can make sense of it, is these demons, demon-possessed men, the sons of God went into men. They possessed them, they controlled them, and they bred, and their offspring then were immediately demon-possessed and by themselves became superhuman And there was such a wickedness going on that these angels were manipulating humanity in some twisted, bizarre, evil, sexual perversion that should never even cross the mind of an angel, a holy angel of God, that this combination of perversion was so great 
And the consequences was so severe with these offspring of demonically possessed children that God said, no angel will ever do that again. They're going to cause destruction. They're going to do a lot of things. But no angel will ever go down this road again. And the being wrapped in the abyss in chains and darkness was such a torment. Again, remember the scriptures I read last week where, where the angels were saying, did you come to torment us before the time? And the angels that ultimately he cast into a herd of swine were saying, don't put us in the pit. It was so bad that God drew a line in the sand and no angel since has crossed it. Are those fallen angels doing destructive things? Absolutely. Is Satan working evil around the world? Absolutely. We see it all around us. There are demons doing all kinds of things, but that's one line that won't ever be crossed again because God immediately dealt with it and he judged it that sexual perversion that shouldn't have even entertained a thought, God dealt with it so fully and finally that for all of their evil, that line will never be crossed again. That's what verse 4, I think, is saying. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, they won't do it again. And he's saying, look, you see the sexual immorality of these teachers? What did God do to the sexually immoral angels? They're taken care of. If he knows what to do with the angels, don't worry about these false teachers. He'll take care of them. So, the first example to give us hope when evil seems to be winning is God's treatment of angelic sin. God's treatment of angelic sin. He dealt with it finally and fully and there are some lines that God won't allow to be crossed. But the second example to give us hope when evil seems to be winning is that same time period and it's God's acts during the time of Noah. God's acts during the time of Noah. And again, the more I study, I don't believe it's coincidental that he chose these events because they all go together. But verse 5 says this, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with the seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Again, we already have been dealing with this, and so I'm going to go through this point a little bit quicker than I normally would. I hope I am. Time is getting away from me. But I want to go back to Genesis chapter 6 again because it really sets the stage and that's where the Bible records what happened with Noah. And I'm going to go back to verse 5 again because it's really painting the picture of why God did what he did with the flood. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. 
Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. So you have this picture of evil running rampant. I believe it's a picture of sexual immorality. I also believe it's a picture of violence. You just look around the world where evil is unrestrained. Some of the most disturbing things I've read about, I won't watch the videos, are the joy that Hamas took in massacring people. Infants, children, women. That's demonic evil. But it's in their own heart. They're culpable. I got to believe there's a, a sense in which that type of evil and wickedness and wanton disregard for life and anything approaching morality was what God saw when he looked on the earth in the days of Noah. And God said, Noah, you're the only one. I'm going to save you and your family. Now, does this mean Noah never sinned? No. But when God calls someone righteous, I believe they were righteous. In other words, he truly followed God. Noah walked with God. He was blameless in his time, meaning the bent of his heart was to worship the one true God. But there literally was no one else. You take Noah and his sons and his wife and his daughter-in-laws and you put them over here, everything else was evil and wicked. And so God told Noah what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy it all. But I'm going to preserve you, so I need you to build an ark. How many of you have been to the Ark Encounter up in Kentucky? It's worth the trip. It really is. It's miraculous. They built the size and everything to get to walk through it. It's hard to fathom. But the Ark Encounter was built with $100 million and teams of laborers and lots of workers and all kinds of heavy equipment and it took a few years. Picture Noah and his three sons, maybe his wife and his daughter-in-law's and you start with nothing. Well, better find a tree. Start cutting. How many trees would you have to cut down? Those of you who have been to the Ark Encounter, how many trees would you have to cut down? Good night. I can't even imagine. Now you got them down. Well, you got to make them into usable wood. Pitch. How many trees you got to go and scrape to get the pitch that you're going to use to cover an entire ark? inside and out to make it waterproof. Some people you'll hear, because of that reference where God said he'll only be with men 120 years, some people think, well, it took 120 years to build the ark. Um, that's not even the view of Ken Ham. <laughs> that, that's not his view. But at the very least, it's probably, I think that I looked at answers in Genesis, they speculate at least 70 years. That's a long time to work on a project. I mean, had a long time. But they didn't have anything else to do. Just go build the ark. 
And our text says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, for some people, that's problematic because if you read Genesis, it doesn't actually say, but you've got to imagine that he was preaching in more ways than one. Number one, you're the only righteous man on an earth full of wickedness. You look different than everybody else. So your life in and of itself is preaching to people. It's different. In Genesis 7, 1, then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household. This is after the ark was built. That's 60, 70 years. It says, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Meaning nobody looked at the ark and said, uh-oh, I better repent. He would have preached with his life. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think Noah lived that way. For whatever 70, 80, however many years it took to build the ark, he was still living that way. He had lived that way for 500 years. He's still living that way. Peter talked in 1 Peter 2 about keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in things they slander you when God returns maybe some of them because of your example will have turned away and repented and believed so there's a sense in which Noah could have been a preacher of righteousness just by his example and his life his light was shining before men yet you got to believe he also had an opportunity to talk to people hey Noah why are you cutting down all those trees what are you building I'm building a boat What's a boat? Well, when it rains, it's going to flood. What's rain? What? And you got to believe he would have been free to say, I'm doing what God told me to do because he's going to destroy and he's going to judge. In Genesis 7-1, he was a preacher of righteousness, but by our human standards, not a very successful one. Because the Lord says, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. There are many times, and I'm sure it's every pastor, where I don't know that I'm having any impact on anybody. Once in a while somebody will say something, but by and large you don't get all feedback all the time. And I'm not Billy Graham with hundreds of thousands of people showing up and raising their hands and walking forward. But I feel bad for Noah. I can't imagine the torment of his heart that a preacher of righteousness who lived righteously for all those decades and not a single person was impacted. That's evil. Yet what Peter is using this as an illustration of is to say, but God dealt with it. He rescued Noah. He was okay. Yeah, he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, but he preserved Noah and seven others, Noah's family. Even in the midst of more evil than we could imagine where everybody around you is evil and there are no good people around you, there's no righteous. God knows how to protect his children. And evil never wins. Because God judged the ungodly then. And he'll judge the ungodly now. 
So again, put ourselves in Noah's shoes, things aren't so bad in America. They really are bad. But the point is, God knows how to rescue us. He will. We're going to be saved out of this. We don't need to despair. We need to be preachers of righteousness, not just the pastors. We need to let our light shine. Do we do it and count numbers? No, because guess what? There may be nobody that believes. Noah experienced that. Jeremiah experienced that. Even Jesus was rejected by most of the people that were following him around for the free food and the healings. They eventually scattered. So yes, it's wearisome. When we get into the next section of Lot, we identify with Lot. That day by day it's just wearing on you. But remember the big picture here of why this is in the Bible. Because we have hope. We have been saved. God knows how to rescue us. The song we were singing, Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. We're, we're okay. God's got us covered. And all the evil in the world, all the people that drive you crazy, don't worry. Hopefully they'll come to faith. But if they don't, God knows how to deal with the ungodly. He did it with angels. He did it with Noah. And we'll see next week, he did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. So let me close this with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. Lord, it's so easy to, to shake our fist at the world that's full of evil. And we can be self-righteous up until we look in the mirror and realize that we were just like the world. We were your enemies and you saved us. Lord, help us never get so angry with the world that we don't have the compassion on them to want to reach them with the gospel. But Lord, countless are going to reject the gospel. Your word makes it clear. Very few find the narrow gate. Lord, help us not to hate those who are our enemies. Help us to love them as you command. But Lord, in the meantime, give us the hope and remind us of the hope that you know how to protect your children and evil will not win. You know how to punish the ungodly. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving and we'll follow up Thanksgiving with Sodom and Gomorrah.